you give your attention now to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the clouds swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, your word. Thank you for preserving it for us through the ages, that we might have it here this morning where it's been read, and we heard it, we understood it. But Father, we ask for more than human understanding. We ask for spiritual understanding that you would open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things, that by your Spirit you would teach us and train us and correct us and even rebuke us in righteousness for your name's sake, that you would make us more like Jesus, Father, that you would grant us a compassion like Jesus, a heart for the lost. Father, be with your people today as they receive your word. Would you be with me, your servant? Would you protect me from error? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. You are my rock and my redeemer. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There was uh, once a shoe salesman who was sent to a faraway land with hopes of expanding the shoe business there. Upon arriving and spending many days visiting several locations, he called back to his headquarters, and this is the report he gave. There's no future for this business here. Most people I've seen do not wear shoes, and they seem very content not doing so. Do not send any product, and please send me somewhere else. Later that year, a shoe salesman from a competing company arrived in the same faraway land with the same hopes of expanding their business there. Upon arriving and spending many days visiting several locations, witnessing the same things that the other salesman had, he called back to his headquarters, and this is the report he gave. Send help and send as many shoes as you possibly can. Most people here 
do not even wear shoes. And I believe we can sell tons of them. And when they see just how life-changing shoes are, they'll keep buying them. What's the difference between those two salesmen? What's the difference between them? On the surface, it's an easy answer, right? Where one of them saw defeat, the other saw opportunity. Where one saw defeat, the other saw opportunity. And as we come face to face with this morning's passage here in Revelation chapter 14, I believe we can learn a lot from the story of these two salesmen. Not how to expand a business, not how to cultivate a a customer base, but rather I think we can learn how to look at a hard, even hopeless situation and not be immediately defeated, but rather to look at that situation and see opportunity, opportunity to press on, to press on with confidence confident hope that the truth that we possess and the truth that we cherish is more than able to change people's lives. And by God's grace, the hope and the truth that we possess can save from the certain wrath that is to come. We're going to handle our text this morning in three sections. So if you're taking notes, these three sections will make up our outline First, we're going to look at verse 14, the Son of Man. Verse 14, the Son of Man. Second, we'll look at verses 15 and 16, the harvest of the righteous. The harvest of the righteous. And third, we'll consider verses 17 through 20, the harvest of the wicked. The harvest of the wicked. Let's begin with verse 14 in our first point, the Son of Man. As we come to the end of chapter 14, we come to the end of the fourth major section in the book of Revelation. In the first section, which was chapters 1 through 3, the glory of Jesus was revealed. His glory was revealed as he addressed the seven churches in Asia Minor. The second section, which was chapters 4 through 7, introduced seven seals. Seven seals which showed Jesus as the one who reigns, the king who reigns over the ages, who reigns over all of history for the perseverance of his people. And the third section, chapters 8 through 11, it revealed the seven trumpets, the seven trumpets that pronounce the inevitable victory of Jesus over a rebellious world. And in this, the fourth section, chapters 12 through 14, we have seen the spiritual warfare, the spiritual warfare that's kind of raging behind the scenes of history. As you may remember, at the end of previous sections, we've been brought to the very brink of Jesus' return and glory, from the promises of conquering and reigning with him in the coming heavenly kingdom in the early chapters, to that rolling back of the sky on the day of judgment in chapter 7, to the sound of the seventh trumpet blast 
that announce the coming of that kingdom, the heavenly kingdom, on the final day. Each and every one of these, at the ends of these parallel sections, brought us to the brink of the return of Jesus. But it's here in chapter 14 where he is first seen. Remember, it intensifies as we go through each section, and here it intensifies, and now we see him. Remember, John had written back in chapter 1, verse 7, he said, Behold, he, Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God, is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Look again how John describes this very event now in verse 14. He says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud And seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. The son of man, as many of you know, is a title. It's a title for the coming Messiah given back in Daniel chapter 7. And as you likely know, this was Jesus' favorite self-designation. Often he referred to himself as the son of man. In fact, what's happening here, what's described as happening, is exactly what Jesus said would happen on his trial. Do you remember when he faced the high priest Caiaphas during his trial? When asked to say, tell us plainly if you are the Christ, the Son of God, what did Jesus say to him? You can see it in Matthew 26, 64. He says, you have said so, but I tell you, From now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. You remember what happened next? It was then that the high priest tore his clothes and cried blasphemy. Blasphemy. What Jesus said would happen is what John gets a glimpse of. What John gets to see right here, and actually what everyone is going to get to see on that last day. Jesus is not going to be hidden on that day. Whether he's going to come to earth visibly and majestically, and he's going to bear the emblems of his glory and his triumph. The text tells us that on his head will be a golden crown. This isn't A badge of kingly royalty. It's not a a crown of royalty, but it's the crown of victorious triumph. It was that crown given to the victorious athlete, right? It's the Stephanos. It's the victory crown. Jesus has conquered. What did we just talk about in the preceding verses? How he's conquered the dragon. How he's conquered the two beasts. We'll see that more in full later But Jesus comes in victory, and with victory comes his right to act in judgment. Judgment that's symbolized by this sharp sickle in his hand. I recognize some of you may not be familiar with a sickle. A sickle is a tool that was used for harvesting In John's day, it would be this large crescent-shaped blade that would be attached to a pole, right? And the harvester would take it, and they would run it, swing it really fast so the blade would cut the grass, and you'd be able to harvest the wheat, the barley, the other things that way. If you want a visual, just think Grim Reaper with the big sickle in his hand. It doesn't just have to be this big pole with a big crescent-shaped blade on it. 
The word in the Greek that's used here also refers to anything used for harvesting, including a small tool, a small knife that you might use to cut clusters of grapes from a vine or even figs from a tree. You remember what Jesus said in his kingdom parables, perhaps? Think of Matthew 13. He says, at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. We're now seeing a picture, a representation of this very event. The glorious and victorious Son of Man is seated on this white cloud, the the cloud glory of God, right? Coming to judge the earth, coming to gather in his harvest. This is the last day. This is Jesus coming to gather the harvest. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus spoke of this coming harvest, just as he did there in Matthew 13. He speaks of it as a double harvest, right? The righteous are gathered to himself. They're given an eternal reward, while the wicked are separated from him to an eternal punishment, This twofold judgment is also reflected here in Revelation 14. The first part of it's revealed in the next set of verses. If you look at verses 14 through 16, it's here where we see our second point this morning the harvest of the righteous. This section of the text reveals several important things about the harvest of the righteous, things that I don't want you to overlook. First, I want you to notice that we're introduced to another angel in verse 15. Remember, we saw three others in chapter 14. Here, we're introduced to another, one that exits, comes out of the temple, giving a command, telling the Son of Man to reap his harvest. Well, some are troubled by this. Do you realize that? Some have been troubled by this verse. How can Jesus be told what to do by an angel? How can Jesus be told what to do? Some are troubled, but I don't think there's any need to be troubled. If you want to look, you can look at Mark 13, 32. Jesus told us that no one knows the day or the hour of the harvest. Not even who? Not the angels in heaven. Not the Son but only the Father. Only the Father. So it's important, we need to see where this angel's coming from. From where is he coming? The temple. He's he's an ambassador. He's a messenger, right? He's an angel. He comes with a message. He comes out of the temple with this message, meaning that he's not acting on his own authority, but rather he's being sent by the Father. He's being sent from the very throne itself to announce the day has finally come. This is the day. So it's important to be reminded here, friends, that as much as we like to speculate, as much as we like to think we might know when Jesus is going to return, even if we just long to know when he might return, no one knows but the Father. No one knows but the Father. And when he comes, when he comes, He'll transmit the message loud and clear. It will be known. It won't be secret. It will be known. 
Next, I want you to notice how the righteous are described. The righteous here are described as wheat. And we get this, and it's made clear by the word that's used to describe the earth as being fully ripe. The word that's used for fully ripe means dried out. It's a technical term. It's, it's a term used that says that, gr- that grain is ready to be harvested. That's where we get the idea of wheat, right? Uh, it's ready to be harvested. Remember what John the baptizer said in Matthew chapter 3, verse 12. He contrasted the, the wheat of the godly with the chaff of the ungodly. And Jesus also used that same imagery in many of his parables. Wheat and chaff. Wheat and weeds, even. The point is that there's a qualitative difference. There's a tangible difference between the righteous and the wicked. The wheat is the product of good seed that has borne much fruit. Does that sound familiar? The parable is sower. Right? The wheat is the product of good seed that has borne much fruit. It's been nourished by God, nourished for God. So if those who are in heaven represent the first fruits of those redeemed from the earth, remember that last week from 14.4, excuse me, two weeks ago, the first fruits redeemed from the earth. And we see here the rest of the harvest, the rest of the harvest, which will most certainly come, come into the storehouses on that final day. I want to go back to that word and have you notice also that the day of harvest has become or has come because the harvest is actually ready. It's fully ripe. This shows us that Jesus will return when the full number of God's elect have come into the church by faith. We need to be reminded that there's a relationship between the final harvest and the gathering of Christ's people Now, this is what Jesus meant when he said, when the fullness of the elect have come in, then he will return to gather them back. We're going to go to this passage later. But Matthew 9, 37, remember Jesus, when he's speaking of the gospel mission of the church, he says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. It's a good reminder for the church. It's a reminder that the great work of the church is indeed the spread of the gospel, the good news about Jesus through preaching, through evangelism, through world missions. Rick Phillips says it this way, the church is not to major in self-help tips, political critique, or feel-good stories, but in the biblical message of redemption from sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. He goes on and he concludes, every Christian is called to spread the gospel through which God is gathering the harvest of his elect. And lastly, take note that even though preparing a field for harvest takes lots of work, it takes even more patient endurance, and even though you and I are workers in Christ's field, we're workers in his harvest, notice that it is Jesus It is Jesus who performs the actual harvesting. He's purchased his people with his own blood. You know that old hymn that says, he sought me and he bought me with his redeeming blood. Jesus harvests his own. 
We saw it earlier in John 6 in our assurance, our words of assurance. All that the Father has given to him will most certainly come to him. They will most certainly be harvested. They will most certainly be raised up on the last day. They will be. So believers, is that encouraging? Is that encouraging to you? Be encouraged. Be encouraged to know that he who began his work of saving grace in you is going to bring it to its fulfillment. And if you happen to be alive on that day when he returns in glory, there's nothing to be afraid of. You will be with him in glory forever. He will lose none. Think about that. He will lose none whom the Father has given to him. None. If you are of God's elect, you will most certainly be raised up with him on the last day. I know this book is hard. And I know that these things that we keep seeing over and over again are hard. But it was written for your encouragement. So be encouraged by that. Thinking about the harvest of the righteous, it should spur us on to faithfulness. It should spur us on to be encouraged. Maybe even to share that with one another as we face various trials and hardships. Listen, Jesus isn't going to let go of you. You're not going to be lost. He'll see you through. Even if you don't realize it till the last day, he'll see you through. You belong to him. It's encouraging. But this account of the second harvest should have a different effect. It should lead us to prayerfulness. Prayerfulness and even compassion. Compassion. The second harvest is seen in verses 17 through 20. Let's consider it in our third and final point this morning. The harvest of the wicked. The second harvest begins with another angel coming out of the temple in heaven, also with a sharp sickle, following it. Another angel came out from the altar. John says the angel who has authority over the fire. So here we have another angel coming out from the temple, but now there's this other one coming out from the altar. What's this? Well, I'm sure you all remember chapters 6 and 8, right? Remember every detail of them. Let me remind you, there we saw a picture. The the souls of the martyrs were gathered beneath the altar of heaven. Remember that? They were crying out for justice, crying out for justice. You remember their prayers? The prayers of all the saints were being offered on the altar as incense going up before God. And remember, he responded. He responded in all of that judgment we saw back in those chapters. We put that together. Think about what's happening in the pictures we've been given of the altar in heaven and the prayers of the saints. We have to see that this judgment that comes on this last day is in part a response to the prayer of Christians, to the prayer of God's people crying out for justice, true biblical justice. So this angel comes out. And he cries to the other. 
put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. Now, much has been made in books and commentaries, and if you're read on this, you'll know this. Much is made about the fact that it's an angel who does this harvest and not Jesus. It's the angel doing the second harvest. Now, while we should not separate Jesus from the judgment and condemnation of the wicked, because we're going to have to deal with chapter 19 later, and he's very much involved with this judgment, we should nevertheless recognize what, what one commentator calls the delicate beauty of this passage. There's a delicate beauty here. For in it, we see mercy. We see the same mercy that Jesus showed in his earthly ministry. Most of you know John 3, 16. Do you know 17 and 18? Came to save the world, right? Not to condemn the world. He came to save the world, not to condemn the world. Those who are condemned are condemned already, for they did not believe. But he came to save, not to condemn the world. He came with the free offer of the gospel, calling on those to repent and believe who heard his voice. Are we not to do the same thing? Call out to all to repent and believe. And though Jesus is the ultimate executor of divine justice, and though he is the harvester of his elect, the recording here, this picture that we're given of the second harvest, does not involve his personal contact. We'll see that later. But don't jump to there yet. Stay here. As John is giving this revelation to the church some 2,000 years ago, and as he's given it to us, even now it's a reminder there's still time. There's still time to repent. The ultimate theological message here is that though it's Jesus' own hand that saves his people, his authority and command as God is more than sufficient for the harvest of the wicked. Even so, the angel's gathering of the wicked depicts judgment. It's the certainty of judgment on who? Grapes. Why the change, right? Why do we go from wheat to grapes? Remember, Revelation is a picture book, not a puzzle book. The grapes of wrath, right? This is the picture we're to see here. There's no way to evade what we're seeing. It's the harvest of the wicked. The picture here is the harvest of the wicked. You could insert weeds. You could insert goats, the fool, seed of the serpent. They're all pictures of the same reality. We talked about this two weeks ago. In the book of Revelation, there's only two kinds of people. Those bound for the promised land and those bound for hell. And here those bound for hell are pictured as grapes. Bottom line is that all sin must be and will be paid for in the court of God's holy justice. I made the point two weeks ago 
that unless the wrath of God against your sin was poured out on Christ on the cross, unless that's true of you, it will be poured out on you in hell for all eternity. And that's the picture we're given. The wicked, they're depicted as grapes, and what happens to them? They're thrown into the wine press of the wrath of God. Now, in John's time, in biblical times, a wine press would be built of rock or brick. Grapes were placed in an upper trough where they were trampled on by feet so that the juice would then flow down a channel into a lower trough that collected all the fluid. As you read this, and I won't read it again right now, it's hard to imagine a more vivid picture of God's terrible violence in judging his enemies. Not in terrible in that we don't like it. It's terrifying. Look at verse 20. I'll let you read it again on your own. Horses have to swim in it. It's as high as their bridle. The amount of stadia there given is about 184 miles. Hundred and eighty-four miles. Don't get hung up on the numbers, though. Some people like to do that. Again, it's a picture book, not a puzzle book. What we're to see here is the extent and the universal scope of the judgment. The extent and scope. But there is one part of verse 20 I I do want to address now. Where does this happen? Where's this wine press located? Outside the city. It's outside the city. You see, the rejection that is involved with God's judgment is shown here. It's pictured here. You see, the ungodly are put outside the covenant bounds of God's city. They're excluded from the society of the redeemed. They're placed on the outer parts. Does that remind you of anything? Where did Jesus suffer? Where was Jesus crucified? Outside the city. And there he bore not only the guilt for our sin, but he also bore the curse and the shame of our sin. I like how Phil Hughes says it. He says, It was there, outside the city, that Jesus gave himself to be trodden in the great winepress of the wrath of God, bearing our sins and absorbing our punishment so that we might be clothed with his pure and holy righteousness. Jesus endured that for those of us who are in him by faith. But when Christ returns again, judgment will come to the same place, outside the city, But this time, the wicked will have no mediator to turn to. 
on that last and final day, they will bear the wrath of God themselves. It's a terrifying picture, isn't it? Humanly, I'd like to skip over some of these passages. But we need to see it. We need to be reminded that sin is not a toy. Sin is not some philosophical idea. Sin is an offense against a holy and righteous God who will hold us accountable for our sin. And unless your sin, unless my sin has been dealt with in Christ, it will be dealt with in this way. As the full wrath of God is poured out. And listen, I can see it now without masks. I can see your faces finally. And I get it. It's natural to recoil at this. They don't teach you this in Church Growth 101, right? They don't say run and preach Revelation 14 and 19. But it's the truth. It's okay to recoil. It's okay to have that reaction. If you're not in Christ, I pray that that reaction sends you to him. If you're in Christ, I pray that it comforts you. And it gives you a greater depth of love for your Savior who bore it for you. But I also think that it should move us to action. It should move us to direct action. I began this morning, you're probably wondering, why do you talk about those salesmen? Remember the salesmen, they're both confronted with that same situation, but only one of them looked at that situation and saw opportunity? So I ask you this. You know there's a coming day of harvest. You don't know when. You know it's, you've been told it will come like a thief in the night. No one will know the day or time. You also know that it's appointed unto man once that he should die and then face the judgment. Knowing that, what is going to be your response? Christians, listen. What will be your response? Knowing that this day is coming, are you going to look to escape? Are you going to beg God not to send his grace? Are you going to cry out to him and beg him to call you to another assignment? Lord, send me somewhere else. Are you going to look to engage what's right before you? Are you going to look to engage what's right before you? You're going to see the opportunity. Look around and say, God, send me all the grace you can. These people need to have their lives changed, not by my salesmanship. I understand the illustration breaks down there. They can be saved by you. And you've commissioned me to go and tell them the good news, to go and tell them this. I mentioned Matthew 9 earlier. I want to close there this morning. Would you turn there with me on your copy of God's Word? Matthew 9, beginning in verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. 
when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Christians, let us be like Christ as we face the coming day of harvest. Let us look upon those who do not know him with compassion. Let us be moved to embrace the opportunity that lies before us for as long as today is called today, there's still time. There's time for sinners to repent of their sins and turn to Jesus Christ for salvation. What's our church's mission? To share our lives in the gospel with people around us. To share our lives in the gospel. To share the gospel. To share the good news about Jesus. Listen, the harvest is plentiful. We know that the workers are few. And so will you join me in praying for even more laborers Would you join me in being one of those laborers and going out, taking the good news of Jesus to others? I hope and I pray that you will do so. Amen and amen.